Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Dr. Robin, how are you? We're here at it again. I'm good. I'm good. Listen, I did a workout this weekend with the Transgender and Envy Project out of L.A. I'm so proud of you. They had me sweating like a horse. Well, um, you know, releasing those toxins isn't necessarily bad for you. It doesn't feel good at the yeah. time, but it's a it's a good yeah. it's a good result of of uh, getting your heart rate up and and yeah. getting some good exercise. I'm I'm glad you found a space, and I and I shared this with you earlier. I'm glad you found a space where you feel like you can, um, you know, really kind of dive deeply into what moving your body around feels like, and do it with people who um, are experiencing similar, if not identical things that you are experiencing yeah. as you are in your body. That's a, it's yeah. a beautiful thing that you have found that space. And I'm really, I'm grateful that you did. Yeah. So I feel, feel really stoked about that. And, you know, it's been a chill weekend. Um, Aaron's mom arrived. So we've been, you know, putzing around doing little projects and whatnot. And, um, but what about you? How are you? It's another Monday. I'm good. I'm good. So we hosted the epic second birthday party for Ruthie Bader, my uh, two-year-old uh, hound mix. Uh, yeah, dog child. Um, as our listeners know, I am that mother that threw a birthday party for her dog um, this past week, and it went amazing. All of her besties were there, and everyone had a great time. Um, the place that we take her to to play made a cake for her and it had oh, her wow. name on it. And it was just a really, really sweet evening. Um, you know, I recognize that she, all she knew was that she had a night with all of her, all of the friends, the dog friends that she loves the best. Yeah. Like she didn't have any idea what was going on. In fact, the balloons scared her and, um, I had her wear her RBG collar, her fancy yeah. lace collar. Um, and that lasted about 15 minutes until she started playing roughly. And I was like, I said to my partner, I'm like, take that off of her. She's going to rip it. Yeah. <laughs> so was she, um, was she tired after the party? She was pooped. She was pooped. Yeah. It was, it was a sweet night though. Um, and I had a pretty chill weekend too. I, um, I am, uh, an activist and pastor who unashamedly loves football yeah. and football started back this weekend. And so I was just as happy as a pig in mud. I was just, 
I was feeling myself this weekend. I was yelling at the television and sporting my my gear and it was it was a did did New Orleans play? They did. Who did they play? Play. They won. Um, All you Tom Brady lovers out there, um, suck that. Just okay. I'm done. I I won't. Yeah, no, we won. We beat, we beat Tampa Bay yesterday, and so we. Um, oh, okay. Yes, it was a good. It was a good weekend for me. All right. So good. Yeah. Um. Interest. Some uh, unsettling news. We had a um, horrible um, incident of anti-Semitism and uh, racial um, hostility here in my hometown of Chattanooga. Um, there were swastikas spray painted all over our downtown area uh, overnight on Saturday um, on a lot of our historic um, bridges and in our arts district and on a lot of, um, you know, really beautiful pieces of, of public art. Um, just really disheartening to, you know, to recognize that um, that kind of nonsense is still happening um, and then, you know, to to read the way that the people in this town are blaming the Black Lives Matter activists for this activity. And um, they, there's just there's a radical disconnect between the work that we're trying to do in the streets to dismantle supremacy culture and end racism among black and brown people um, and their understanding of what that movement means and looks like. Right. And just the fact that I, I mean, you know, hashtag never read the comments, but I, um, I, I felt like I spent a lot of my weekend, uh, giving people who are misunderstanding the peaceful movement of, um, Black Lives Matter an understanding of how this absolutely was nothing this destruction had absolutely nothing to do with, with us and with that work. And it's, it just, it makes, I feel like I have a permanent scar on my forehead from banging it against the wall in talking to some of these people, but. Yeah. That's a complicated word when we're doing, thinking about these things at the intersections of oppressions. Right. You know, and I never want to play oppression Olympics, you know, whose oppression is greater. Exactly. But that's really where people go in, in this. And, and there's of course, lots happening in the world. Um, we're fi- we're now 50 days out from the election. And um, I still feel very scared. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, we have a really, um, interesting guest today. I think this conversation is going to be exactly what we need for this week in this moment. Um, we're grateful today that we're welcoming Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons. Um, Guthrie is a, a fellow at um, the uh, Center for American Progress. Uh, he works on faith and progressive policy there. Um, he hails from Louisville. Well, he's not originally from Louisville. But he, he can tell you a little more about his story. but um, And 
Guthrie's work is centered around kind of all of the bits and pieces that that we're talking about here on the Activist Theology Podcast. And we're thrilled that he's with us. We'll let him tell you a little bit more about himself, um, but we're really, really happy to welcome him. Guthrie, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be with y'all today. And Guthrie, you have a book coming out like that came out today. Well, it comes out tomorrow. I'm not sure when this is going to air. Tomorrow. Tuesday. Yeah. Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity, wherever books are sold, Kindle, Audible, hardcover, wherever you can get books, it's available. Yeah. I just wanted to celebrate that because it's a big deal when books come out. Thank you. Um, especially during during a pandemic. And so we wish your book all the best. And we hope that, of course, folks listening on this podcast that will drop later in the week, um, run out to your independent bookstore and get this book. Yes. Mask up. Yeah. And get, and get your book. And, and it's coming out from, I put my mask on and went to my independent bookstore. Um, and it was really fun. Uh, and I know it, it's coming out from Broadleaf Books, which I know, Dr. Robin, uh, you have a you're working on a book uh, for Broadleaf. So glad to be on the same glad yeah. to be in the same publisher yeah. family with you. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. I didn't know that it was coming out uh, from Broadleaf. Um, they've been so wonderful with me and I trust that they have been wonderful with you and they're putting out some really interesting things. Um, and I hope your book does very, very well. Thank you. Guthrie, why don't you tell folks a little bit more about yourself, more in addition to the very basic uh, introduction that I provided for our listeners? Basically, tell us how awesome you are and amazing you are. You mentioned. Because I, I know that that's the story that doesn't get told a lot. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned me not being from Louisville. So uh, maybe I should start there. I, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I'm the son of two labor union organizers, and I grew up in a very politically active uh, household in Houston, going to marches and rallies and uh, with my parents on the picket line growing up. And I also grew up in a a liberal Methodist church, um, which was a supportive congregation and, and social justice and uh, following Jesus always felt like two sides of the same coin for me. And I, I felt called to this work of faith and politics uh, growing up in Houston from a very early age and kind of set out to to do the work uh, in college. Uh, I went to college in D.C. And, and studied politics and then later seminary in New York City to study the more of the theology side and, and worked in between on different campaigns on immigration reform and countering Islamophobia and now kind of on a lot of different issues, but always kind of driven by that um, childhood feeling of like, there's so much wrong in the world that needs to be made right. And Jesus calls me to this work, you know, these stories I was reading in Sunday school. And then I guess I, how I ended up in Louisville, uh, I fell in love in seminary in New York. And my now husband was like, I want to move to Louisville. And I'd never been here before, but uh, have been here a few years now and, and really fell in love uh, with this city. So proud to call myself a, a Louisville uh, resident now. So that's a quick journey through uh, my life history. I love it. I'm also from Texas. I don't know if you knew that. And 
San Antonio is my home and um, had family in Houston and would frequently make the trip between San Antonio and Houston for family reunions and whatnot. Um, so I still claim Texas as my home, but not their politics. Right. <laughs> yeah, I still claim to be a Texan. Uh, and, and there's so much good in that, uh, as well as, you know, a lot to grapple with. And, and Love San Antonio was there a few years ago for a queer Methodist meetup conference uh, right on the Riverwalk. Um, so, so Love San Antonio, glad to have so many connections, publishers, text and yeah. so much. Yeah, yeah. So Guthrie, do you still consider yourself a United Methodist? I don't. I was on a journey. Um, I, I, my family goes back generations, founded a church, Methodist church in the Hill Country in Texas, outside Austin, small little church. Um, and, and growing up, Methodism was, was important and kind of like in my family's tradition. And, and I had a really positive experience. And I, I was kind of, I realized not a, an outlier in a, a, there are a lot of amazing progressive Methodist churches all around the country. But in, in the sense of, I discovered that there was official discrimination in the church against me as a gay man and that, uh, which was not my experience growing up. So it was kind of jarring to realize the kind of Methodist church as a whole, the United Methodist church had this discrimination, uh, and its policies against LGBTQ people and our ability to live lives with dignity. And so Yes. I, I stayed in the Methodist church through college. I went to Methodist university. I was really into it. American university. And it was really powerful. Like having a supportive church. I prayed with my college chaplain, like as I came out um, and was just supported and held and was a member of an amazing church in DC called Foundry United Methodist. That does a lot of activism. Yes, I love Foundry. <laughs> Every, I mean, Foundry is a beautiful congregation. Uh, and so, and then I was at the general conference in 2016 in Portland, Oregon with my mom protesting with the love your neighbor coalition and everybody. And, um, when the vote, and I, I'm just an optimistic person naturally. So I have a tendency to really get my hopes up and then be heartbroken. And that's what happened. And so as, as I was flying back to seminary from Portland to New York, I was like, I'm really done. Uh, and, and when we moved yeah. to Louisville, uh, I went to, I joined a, pres, uh, not a Presbyterian, uh, Baptist church. My, I was thinking about my husband. We go together. He's a Presbyterian PCUSA pastor, but I, uh, we go to a Baptist church here and I fell in love with a church where I, where like my dignity wasn't up for a vote. They'd already decided to become affirming a few years before we right. moved here. So I was like, Finally, no one is voting on my dignity. It felt really amazing. On your birthday. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But now I'm a Baptist. Yeah, you, um, I was, now you're a Baptist. I, so I still consider myself a, a United Methodist um, in a real problematic way. But I, our stories are very similar. I'm a sixth generation United Methodist um, from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And um, my family also planted a church there. And... I am a pastor in the UMC who I was fired in 2018 for presiding over a same-sex wedding. And um, I, I 
at this point, I'm still, you know, engaged in the work, mm-hmm. mainly because I'm a bigger pain in the ass to the church from the inside of the walls than I am if I were on the outside screaming in. Um, but it's, it is, it's a tough, it's a tough space to be in, but I, I'm I was just curious and I'm, thank you for sharing, um, a bit of that walk with me. Um, personally, I, um, I honor you in, in every ounce of, of your being. And I am, um, both mortified and embarrassed and heartbroken that the UMC did that to you. And, uh, yet I am optimistic like you are, I think, eternally that um, we will figure it out one way or another. I don't know exactly what it'll look like. And I don't think any of us can speculate, but I hope that we'll, I hope that we'll do the right thing, even if it takes, even if it takes us a while to get it done. Thank you. And I honor your fight from within the, within the denomination still. I know everyone is, there's so many people within and who've left who are really wrestling with it and want the church to, to honor the dignity of LGBTQ people. So, um, yeah, everyone's doing, everyone's doing their work from their different places. You know, um, I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of thoughts about this because I have been thinking, um, about how, how to talk about LGBT equality, um, in a way that doesn't reify liberal politics. And what I mean by that is if we prioritize experience in the, and, and like, if I'm talking about my lived experience, how is that not, um, reifying individualism or hyper-individualism, right? Like the critique, I think, from so many religious communities is that um, LGBT equality, whatever that means, needs to come from a communal understanding. Mm-hmm. And And what we've done is we have created narratives that are rights-based narratives that um, undergird individualism. And I, I'm on a journey right now. Um, you know, I'm on faculty at Duke, and um, Duke is very wary of liberal politics. And so um, I'm on a journey right now trying to articulate exactly what you say, Guthrie, around Let's not argue the dignity of people, but let's steward belonging on a communal level. And and I'm on a journey of like reading um, books and reading lots of things on how do we get away from these rights-based arguments and instead steward a more holistic, more communal conversation around things like equality um, because as, as I was um, reflecting on several days ago with my partner, even, even at the Supreme court um, and their, their um, striking down of DOMA was based on or rooted in this sort of concept of a nuclear family and the adoption case that was up 
for argumentation. And I'm just wondering, like, if, if LGBT equality or if queer life is about something fundamentally different mm -hmm. from, from, from the norm, why are we legislating politics that mirror the norm and that, and that conflate lived ex queer lived experience you know like is it because we need something familiar or what so anyways i'm on a journey you know just trying to tweeze this out theoretically and theologically mm -hmm. and um would just love to hear um your reflections on that i definitely uh, i mean this is probably a much longer conversation than than uh, one podcast but the I, I definitely find resonance in what you're saying with not centering heteronormativity and saying like queer, like I've wrestled with that within myself of like wanting to be straight passing. And, you know, I'm, I'm very not straight passing, but sometimes I think I'm trying to be and uh, yeah. like trying to adapt my, the like internalized homophobia I feel in in sort of trying to adapt and be like that um i i struggle with the idea that that my marriage is me trying to adapt to a kind of heteronormative society i mean it's something i've, right. I've thought about a lot and wrestled with mm -hmm. internally how much like my desire for monogamy and things is wrapped up in and like I want the church to be able to, I want to queer the church in, in many ways and disrupt a lot of those systems while also um, that work, I think is a yes. And to, if there are yeah. rights and sacrament that the church is doing, they should be available. Like if, if the church is going to do marriage growing up, one of the, my pastor at this church, it was pretty, you know, uh, trying to be affirming in the Methodist church and not being allowed to be affirming the pastor suggested not doing any weddings, which I thought was a pretty cool idea. Like, <laughs> we're not going to do any weddings. Yeah. We're not allowed to do all of them. That, to me, is, resonates much more. But if you're going to do, if you're going to ordain people or if you're going to do, mer you know, wedding ceremonies in the church, I still think it, it's not a it's not an unreasonable ask that those should be available to all people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... I I got roped into a Twitter conversation um, a couple days ago. You, you may have seen it. I'm not sure, but about um, a leading public figure who um, is ambiguous to to say the least about LGBT equality and inclusion and affirmation. And um, you know, I was in this conversation, and th this conversation is really what mobilized me to start out on a learning journey mm -hmm. to try to talk about this in a better way. Because what do we mean by affirmation? What do we mean by inclusion? Um, you know, like I use that language at, in for convenience sake, because we all, we all pretty much know what it means. Right. Um, but, um, but maybe the church and society are using these terms differently and if that's the case, how do we, how do we bridge the gap to, to for a more common understanding? If that's possible, um, anyways, I, I, um, I appreciate your thoughts and, um, 
I, you know, I'd be curious, Anna, what do you think about this? Because you have been fighting for inclusion for years and you have befriended many queerdos along your way. Um, what do you think about this? I mean, I think we're, we're all subject to a system, regardless of whether you're talking about the church or the state that are built upon the understanding of patriarchal and misogynistic value. Mm -hmm. They all center one side of a coupling over another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think in, in addition to queering the church, you know, we also have to be intentional to queer every other aspect of this world that we're a part of. Um, you know, Robin, you mentioned DOMA. I mean, th there's a reason that the, the law shifted the way it did. And it's because the, it, it was, it was an answer to the original law that was being fought over. The problem, the problem is not just in the shifting of language, but in the initial writing of the language. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've got, we have centuries of, um, male centered, um, exclusion that that has permeated every aspect of the society that we're that we're attempting to to level and and i i'm i struggle to to not just um affirm what inclusion should look like in the church but i struggle to re language re um imagine simply how we refer to one another and how we talk to one another in the work. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so uh, again, like I'm with Guthrie, I think this is a conversation that could happen like on another two hour podcast. Yeah. Cause you know, we also want to talk about you know, yeah. what's going on in Louisville and, and, and all the work that Guthrie's doing in the world. But I think that, you know, this, this understanding of, or the misunderstanding of every life as equal and equitable to every other life, um, regardless of the nature of that life is one that we still haven't, we, we, we can't all come to an agreement upon. Mm -hmm. We still can't all come to an agreement upon the, the, the equity that, that one of one to the other of us, deserve. And a lot of that is going to require us to not just, you know, refashion systems, but to literally tear systems down and rebuild them so that it isn't a male centric patriarchal um, foundation on which all of it is built, both the church and the state. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, one other thing that this conversation brings up for me is is the need for dialogue and understanding and and realizing people have different views on different theological questions and that is something to celebrate and be in dialogue about i do think in the midst of that some precision in terms of like what people believe about certain things is is helpful for instance 
I was ordained two years ago, you know, in the in, in my Baptist church to be a deacon. There's a, a strong, you know, throughout Christian history, the church has called, you know, deacons uh, to serve, serve the body of Christ. And for a long time, you know, I, I think our church in the 80s, you know, allowed female deacons um, and then kind of opened it up to the LGBTQ community just a, a few years before I moved to Louisville. And so like being precise about, are we talking about LGBTQ civil rights laws in society? Or are we talking about what my church, you know, should, should people be allowed to be called as deacons? Um, and, and what do we think in a communal sense, I, I totally agree with moving away from the rights based language, but in a communal sense, how do we think the community should be nourished by calling certain people up to leadership? And am I going to to exclude people for certain reasons? Yeah. I think that's a valid, I think yeah. knowing, you know, where people think, you know, if, the, if, if that were to come up in their local church is, is a reasonable part of the conversation with some clarity, which is why I love the, the work of yeah. Church Clarity, an amazing organization that kind of publishes Church's policies on, on women in leadership and LGBTQ um, kind of policies the church enforces. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I would love to at some point have a more robust conversation about about this um, with you, Guthrie, maybe on the podcast. Um, but I'd love to hear you know, what's going on in Louisville, how are y'all interfacing with, I mean, Louisville has been on the, in the news um, after Breonna Taylor's death. And so because this podcast encourages people to get their hands dirty with the work of the world, tell us, tell us what's been happening in Louisville and help us, you know, paint us a picture of, of the work that we can be thinking about and ways that we can get our hands dirty. Yeah, thank thank you for that question. Uh, our city is in a, a deep state, and our state are in a deep state of unease right now because there's this investigation into the murder of Breonna Taylor that's happening. It's in the hands of our Attorney General Daniel Cameron, and we're kind of. Um, just, I think so many people are waiting, hoping uh, that the investigation will come back and they'll and they'll prosecute the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. And yet, we know how often these kinds of cases, um, you know, the the government sides with the killer cop. And so, I think there there were a lot of protests. Um, uh, you know, at the at the beginning of the uprising, and you know there there still are some. There were more protests around uh, the Kentucky Derby, uh, which ran uh, earlier this month, and yet I feel there is this kind of like okay, it's clear uh, there there is a lot of um, there have been so many calls for justice. People from outside Louisville have come here. There's been sustained marches throughout the street, we turned a square uh, into Brianna Taylor Square across from our uh, city hall. And there's been a lot of pressure on our local officials. And now it's sort of like waiting for this decision. 
uh, and people have been coming kind of thinking it's coming soon. There have been different uh, white supremacist militia groups coming. And so I would say it's generally unease. I, what people can do is pray. I think all of my activism is rooted in prayer and then um, support the Louisville Bail Fund, support Black Lives Matter Louisville. Uh, if you can financially or, you know, go to their pages and find out what the different demands are. Um, mm-hmm. And and then I think there's going to be a big moment when this decision comes out from Daniel Cameron and whether it's positive in terms of there's justice uh, for Breonna Taylor. Some, of course, there may be something kind of in between or um, injustice. I hope people um, don't grow tired of, of the because there's, like I said, there's been some, and I, and I felt it, you know, I've gone less to protest uh, more recently, but I hope there's another surge and, and we honor her life uh, again, no matter what the, the um, decision is from Cameron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that waiting game is a difficult one. You know, there are those who will speculate that the longer that it takes, the more optimistic they are that there's a deep, deep sense of due diligence being done and that the right outcome will, will arise. Um, there are others who will say, you know, the longer it takes, the more likely it is that um, nothing will happen and there will be um, no prosecution and, and no resolution to her, her death other than that the world knows her name and that we recognize once again that, um, you know, our, our police forces in, in towns and cities are not operating with the ethics of community that we would, we would want them to. Um, but you're right, Guthrie, in that whenever the outcome is announced, there will be in one way or another, a surge of, or an outpouring of emotion. And it's incumbent on us as people who do the work in the world to make sure that that surge and that outpouring is first and foremost centered around Brianna and her family, but secondly, that it's peace-filled and that it doesn't echo in any way the actions of the murderers that took her life. Um, And those are often hard things to reconcile. Those are hard things for all of us in the work to remind ourselves that peace-filled action is, um, you know, the, the call, especially those of us that are followers of Jesus, that, that that's the, (laughs) that's the call on us in this work. Um, Sometimes it's hard to remember that. And I sometimes I feel like I'm talking to myself when I remind myself that <laughs> I've been I've been just very scared about what what could happen in terms of the the white supremacist militias and the cops uh, yeah. uh, leading. That's what I saw. I mean the the first few marches we went to all just. I mean I've been going to marches my entire life. It was like any other march I've been to. You know I mean intense. These are calls for justice. But it was the police every time that escalated the violent coming out in their big riot gear and everything and trying to storm the the protesters. And so 
I'm scared about the whole country, especially around the election. If the president tries to steal the election too, um, about these white supremacist militias. And so I think there's a, a call for faith communities to, to be prophetic witnesses like the faith leaders at Charlottesville who marched prophetically um, there and made a show of, of this uh, prophetic witness uh, that, that yes. many of us are going to be called on to do uh, in, in the near future, possibly. Well, you know, Anna and I were both in Charlottesville and um, one of the scariest days of my life for lots of reasons. And, you know, the fear that you talk about um, around the white militias, the white nationalist militias and the police, you know, I think that I think that we have not reached that the the apex point of of our fear because it seems that it just continues to build and build and build and at what point are we going to be able to neutralize this stuff so that we can actually create peace and justice i mean that's my question yeah Guthrie, how are you finding the community to um, the communities of faith right now in Louisville to be responding? Um, are you um, filled with a hope or an optimism in in what you're seeing out of this community that that you that you love so much? Um, what kind of what kind of work are you seeing come out of the the faith the faith leaders right now? I think there's been an active kind of clergy present at the the protest, and I know uh, there have been some. Uh, there was a, a few weeks ago. There was another militia kind of that came to town, and there was a whole. And then they actually didn't show up, uh, but there was a whole line of clergy. Um, Louisville really values uh, kind of inner interfaith understanding and interreligious um, dialogue. And so it, I think there has been uh, some presence. I think there could be more as always. Uh, and I would love to see, uh, oh, I should have mentioned another thing that uh, two Saturdays ago, the Presbyterian Church USA, the PC USA uh, is based here in Louisville. And they had a huge, uh, day of action in louisville and in cities in like six other cities across the country um and march from the presbyterian headquarters which is downtown uh to brianna taylor square um and uh i thought that was a really interesting and, and i heard they got some pushback from more moderate elements of the pcusa denomination but uh i i think that like the whole denomination mobilizing especially since the, that is kind of a, a big institution here in Louisville, um, was really needed and was kind of new. You don't often, you know, you don't often see big institutions uh, engaged in that kind of activism. Um, so that, that makes me hopeful. Right. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I'm glad to know that, that, that there's a kind of a, a community and communal presence there that that is palpable 
Uh, not that I wouldn't have expected it, um, but I, I think anytime we, you know, we watch cities that are not our own engage in, um, you know, uh, action that, um, in some ways, um, makes, makes others feel harmed or minimized. It's, it's, um, it's good to see that, that, that the community piece is still intact and that there are, um, you know, communities that are rising up and, and wanting to be a part of the, the peaceful solution and, and the active pushback, not just, um, pacifism for pacifism's sake, but, um, you know, nonviolent resistance in a way that affirms the need for us to be firm in our stance, um, but also peaceful in our tactics. <laughs> so Guthrie, I'd love to chat a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing um, around um, the rights of Muslims and uh, Arabs and Sikhs and um, those who are kind of also finding their their place here in the U.S. Um, to be um, riddled with racism and, uh, you know, a precarious balance of um, affirmation versus those that, 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 that simply don't don't want them here and don't believe that their that their work here is valued. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing either with the Center for American Progress or with the um, with with just your 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 kind of work in general in in faith circles? Sure. And I prior to starting at uh, the Center for American Progress earlier this year, I spent about three and a half years uh, full time working on countering Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry. So I, could, I guess I could step back and, and share a little bit about how I got into this work of immigrant rights and inclusion in the country. I yeah, uh, was after college was uh, looking for a job and kind of not knowing what exactly I knew I was interested in this kind of faith and politics uh, work, but didn't know exactly what that meant as a vocation. And so I, uh, I read actually a newspaper article about how this really awful anti-immigrant bill had been passed in Alabama and uh, the, the Methodist, the, I think Catholic, maybe Episcopal, I'm not sure those are the right denominations, but three bishops sued the state of Alabama saying you are criminalizing making, uh, being a good Samaritan. And they actually said uh, harboring people who are in the United States without proper authorization is a crime. So like driving a church van uh, with people here without authorization would be like a crime. And you see so you'd arrest like the, the church volunteer and the, the church is sued. And I was very convicted uh, by that happening, you know, in Alabama. And so I got a short term job working with that. We started, I was one of the first organizers that helped start the Alabama Coalition for Immigrant Justice and working in Tuscaloosa and uh, from there, I just kind of got involved in, in the intersection of immigrant rights and my faith. Uh, then I was the faith coordinator at the National Immigration Forum in D.C. And from there, uh, I was I got involved with this group called Rethink Media, which is a 
a communications firm that works with different movements, including the movement to counter anti-Muslim bigotry. And when the, the president uh, unveiled his grant, then, you know, then candidate Trump unveiled his Muslim ban. Um, that to me just really, that, that was an issue that uh, like the, the bill in Alabama, uh, I wanted to, to to work on and try to make right and, you know, do my part in working in that movement. And so I spent those, those three and a half years uh, fighting uh, the Muslim ban in, in its different iterations with a lot of amazing Muslim Arab, Sick and South Asian activists and a great coalition of group called the Shoulder to Shoulder Campaign. I hope uh, any listeners who haven't heard of that will, will go and Google the Shoulder to Shoulder Campaign, which is all different people of all different faiths coming together uh, to defend um, their Muslim neighbor and those who are discriminated against because they're perceived to be Muslim. So they actually just celebrated last week 10 years of work uh, to do this um, really important work with the rise in uh, anti-Muslim hate violence and in policy violence with the Muslim ban. So, and I've continued that work at the Center for American Progress, where we kind of, we touch on all like immigration policy, but also LGBTQ policy. Um, uh, and I could list all the different policy areas, but I probably miss a few and how they interact with religion. And so around immigration, it's a lot dealing with um, the overt uh, kind of infringement upon religious liberty that is happening with the Muslim ban. So that's kind of a, a brief history of, of how I got into this work and uh, what we're up to now. We have a report coming out in a few weeks called uh, the Trump administration's attacks on faith communities. It kind of documents all these different attacks. Hmm. And and one of the mo- one of the largest sections of the report is about the Muslim ban. Part of what I love about that story is you speak of your conviction after hearing about the lawsuit in Alabama, and um, I think that we live in a time where. For whatever reason, we're unable to get in touch with that moral conviction to do right. Um, would you say that that conviction that you felt, that you sensed, I don't know how you would phrase it, um, comes from your practice of following Jesus? Most definitely. Yes. The, the, um, the call to love your neighbor as yourself without exception makes it impossible to kind of support the policy that were being enacted uh, through the Muslim ban or through that really anti-immigrant law that made it a crime to harbor, to drive people or to have people in your church even um, that were here without, you know, they didn't um, come with the right document. So uh, it's it's been an expression of my faith, and I've been around being raised by activists and being a kind of professional activist my entire career. I've been around people that are convicted. That's like all the people I'm around, and so I see so many different movements yeah. that are so inspiring, 
um, all the activists I've met and, and being a privileged white um, man in these spaces, uh, Christian man being, you know, benefiting by so much privilege uh, in these spaces. I just, I've spent my entire career in life and then growing up uh, around so many people who were fighting for their rights on, at their workplaces. I saw with my parents, I've always just been inspired by so many people who, um, you know, want to do something, you know, they're, they're not resigned to, you know, this is the way of the world and you just got to deal with it. They believe that a better world is possible. And that's the whole basis of activism. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you, man. Guess I could talk to you all day. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's, you know, the beautiful thing about being another activist, you know, you always draw inspiration from, from other people. Yeah. That's what, at least I do. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Same. I just, I feel, I feel like I feel really inspired listening to you and, um, just, I, I want, I want so much for us to leave this world in better shape than how we've inherited it. Amen. And, I want so much for us to come together across our differences in light of our differences and love. You know, I really believe in the power of love. And if we can just figure our shit out, you know, and and do the work to create a better world. You know, I mean, I think about how the West Coast is on fire right now, and that's in large part due to the way we've treated the earth and you know i'm just like what do we do to mobilize people to get them to feel inspired or feel the conviction to to do good and to do justice that's the perennial question yeah we have to we have to call other people into it in love you know no one's ever been shamed into activism uh we, right. I think you, people respond right. like the first followers of Jesus did to his message. Um, and, and that's the call that we have to make. We yeah. have to, but someone does have to put out, you know, someone does have to make the call to people to show up. Uh, yeah. But when you do and you invite people out of that place of love, people have always showed up and I think always will. I love that. Guthrie, why don't you share with our listeners how they can find out more about what you're doing in the world, where they can reach you on the socials. Let our folks know how they can be in touch with you so that after we're done here, they can still um, uh, have a a dialogue with you so that if they choose to. Sure. Well, I should mention again, I'm trying to get better at this. My book, Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity, available wherever books are sold. And I'm on Twitter a, a, a lot, uh, Guthrie-GF on Facebook, on Instagram. You can email me, GF at gmail.com if you, you know, want to start a conversation or something. I love uh, hearing what people, you know, it's, it's a strange thing to put out of a lot of ideas and then uh, not get a response. So I love kind of dialoguing with people. So feel free to reach out in any of those ways. We know that sometimes podcasting is like that. You put out weekly ideas and it's like into the ether. And we, we know that people are listening. We know that people are engaging, but we, we too, we're like you, we love having folks just Mm -hmm. even just talk back or clap back at us. We know that there's a, 
there's a uh, a response to to something that's been said, or there's an affirmation that the work that all of us are doing in the world is is at least being heard and is being um, you know is is on the ears of people who are interested in in going further with their with their own work. Well, Guthrie, we are grateful that you took some time out today to to spend it with the Activist Theology podcast. I know I echo Robin when I say thank you once again. Um, your time with us has been time that we um, don't take lightly, and we're thankful that you carved a little bit of, of space in your day to, to share your journey with our listeners, to let folks know um, kind of what's, what's going on in your corner of the world. Um, Robin, we are um, quickly approaching uh, fall, and we'll be in a, a new season for our podcast. I'm excited that we're we, that we've come so far, and we're still doing this thing, and that we get to talk with amazing know, people like Guthrie every week. Yeah, it's so yeah. great. And we've got 50 days to go to the election, so we're going to be focused on that in some capacity, and. Um, I mean, I just want us to get free. Yep. Get free and get our hands dirty. Those are your marching orders, friends. Until next week, we'll see you later. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.